tonight I'm going to be speaking on the time of the Gentiles. I'm going to try to go quick and go through chapters 2 through 7, and uh, we're going to move quick. Uh, chapter 1 we went over last week was an intro of the book of Daniel, and it shows the kind of person and the, his character and who God revealed the mysteries of the future. And chapters 2 through 7 gives us information about God's dealing with all human history in the future. Chapter 1, chapter 8, and chapter 12 are in the Hebrew language. That was the language the Jews spoke. Chapters 2 through 7 is in Aramaic. That was the language of the common folk or the Gentiles. In chapters 2 through 7, we know Jesus referred to these times as the time of, of the Gentiles in Luke chapter 1 and 24. And it refers to the time when the Gentiles dominated the world, the Jews, and the nation of Israel. This time began when Nebuchadnezzar took the Jews into captivity back in 586 B.C. And it continues on until today, and it won't end until Jesus comes back. Uh, we know today that um, you, although the Jews are back in their homeland, they do not have sovereignty over their own um, nation. So what we're going to try to do here in chapters 2 and 7, and I'm going to do them in this order, we're going to see a prophecy of an image and a prophecy of animals and how it refers to four Gentile nations and their end. In chapter 3, we're going to see persecution and deliverance of Daniel's three friends in a fiery furnace. In chapter 4, we're going to see God's revelation to a Gentile king, Nebuchadnezzar, and him humbled and his kingdom, kingdom blessed. And in chapter 5, we're going to see another Gentile king, King uh, Belshazzar. We're going to see his arrogance and his kingdom removed. And then in chapter 6, we're going to see Daniel delivered uh, supernaturally by the hand of God. So chapters 2 through 7 explain the succession of four Gentile empires that would exert control over the Jews until God's kingdom was established. Chapters 3 and 6 warn of the Jews' persecution that they would face during their time that they would be encouraged to remain faithful. In chapters 4 and 5, we're going to see how the Jewish remnant is encouraged because although the Gentiles rule, God is Lord over all nations and ultimately he wins. So here we go in chapter uh, 2 of uh, Daniel. Verse 1, it says, Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit so troubled him that his sleep was up. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, to tell the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Nebuchadnezzar, he calls in all his wise men, and they could not give him uh, what the dream was or the meaning of it. So they failed to uh, do their job. So in verses 4 through 13, we see that the king makes a firm decree. It says in verse 4, Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now this is where it goes from Aramaic all the way to the end of chapter 7. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your house shall be made into an ash heap. And verse 13 says, so the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Evidently, it was customary for the Babylonian kings to tell the dreams to their advisors, 
and then their advisors would go into their libraries, look up the dream, and then they would come back with a politically correct answer to satisfy the king. We remember that these wise men were something uh, that came in Jesus' day. We know that there was these men that came from the east to visit Jesus and learn about some great event that was happening because of the arrangements of the stars. So they came to see him. So these are some of these wise men that were into stargazing and, and all these different kinds of things. Now we see Daniel request for time in verses 14 to 16. All the wise men, they refused time. They were in a hurry, but not Daniel. Daniel saw his God. When Daniel learned of this sentence, he responded with discretion and discernment. Don, Daniel knew that his God could reveal dreams and visions as well. And what Daniel did is he asked for a little time, and that was very wise. Anytime we're in a situation in life and we have to make a decision, it's an important decision, we need to make it now, and it's all the more reason we have to slow down, take a moment, and see God's will, and give God a chance to be God. And that way, when things happen, you make choices, uh, you know that God went before you instead of making a choice and having plans to lie to fix it. So Daniel gets an answer from God in verses 17 to 22. And um, the first thing he did is he got his three friends to pray. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, Daniel had a vision, and both were from God. God speaks to uh, his creation in various ways. Um, obviously, if you're a child of God, he's going to speak to you in a unique way in his word. But God will always speak to an unbeliever to call him to himself. In verse 20, we see Daniel thanking God. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells in them. Daniel gives all the glory to God, and that's why God kept doing supernatural things to him. In first Peter 1.21 it says, For prophecy never came by the will of men, but by the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now Daniel appears before the king. Daniel convinced his uh, steward, Arioch, that he could identify the king's dream and its interpretation, so he's brought into the presence of the king. And then Daniel relates the dream and the interpretation to the king. And before he, before and after he tells the king, he tells the king, it's not me, it's God, and he takes none of the credit for himself. You see the humility in Daniel. Verses 31 through 35, we get the dream. It says, you, O king, were watching and behold, a great image, the great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you. And its form was awesome. The image of the head was of fine gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while well, stone was cut without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that there was no trace of them to be found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The important thing about this statue were the materials that were composed of and what happened to it. Um, we did have a PowerPoint with a picture, um, but we're having technical difficulties of what the image looked like. But it was a figure of a man, um, and it, it was in employed here because God wished to make known what would transpire during man's day, the ages in which mortal man would rule the earth. So it's a picture of four actual kingdoms that would arise. And the first one was the head of gold. 
and it was the only member of this statue who were made of one metal. All the others were made of more substance than seven arms. The second, there was a decreasing value beginning from uh, top, proceeding down. Gold is worth more. The next section of the statue was silver, and then bronze, and then went iron, and then went iron and clay. Third part of this image, it was top heavy. You know, gold is a very dense metal, iron is not. The fourth thing about this statue, it went from the softest metals to the hardest metals, and it referred to the type of uh, ruling and kingship. But what's interesting is the feet were combined with two materials, some hard and some fragile. And as Nebuchadnezzar beheld this image, he saw an uncut stone come out of the air, smash its feet, crumble it into little pieces, and while he watched, the whole statue fell apart and disintegrated into powder. A wind blew it all away, and the rock that struck the image began to grow and to fill the whole earth. So what it is in a nutshell is it's a picture of four different empires that have ruled the world, um, including the nation of Israel. The last part of the image, it, it talks about the feet that's, um, uh, we believe, the revived Roman Empire uh, that will rise up again in the last days and you know, Europe is united. So that's kind of a picture of that. But the stone that struck the image, uh, that's a picture of the millennial kingdom because when, it, when, it, when Jesus sets up his kingdom, there'll be no more earthly kingdoms. He mentions how it crushes it to powder and blows it away. There's no more evidence of it. And the stone grows and becomes a uh, huge uh, mountain and fills the whole earth. But anyway, here's the interpretation of the I want you to get the word part of it more than my uh, commentary. And it says in verse 36, This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand. He has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. But after you shall rise another kingdom inferior to yours, then a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And a fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, and as much as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. Whereas you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. That the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. Verse 44. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So Nebuchadnezzar, he was the head of gold. He exercised unrestricted authority over life and death throughout Babylon. His word was law, and he could change the law anytime he wanted, and it had the answer to no one. His kingdom lasted for 67 years. The next kingdom that came was the Medo-Persian Empire, and this was led by Cyrus the Great. The arms of the image, apparently mentioned, uh, represent two nations, the nation of Midia and Persia. It lasted 208 years. The next kingdom that came was Alexander the Great, and he ruled Greece. And Greece dominated the ancient world from 331 to 330 to 31 BC, and it lasted 40, 300 years, I'm sorry. And then lastly, Rome. Rome defeated the Greek Empire and it ruled for hundreds of years. It started in 500 BC, and there was two legs of the statue, uh, the left leg and the right leg. Well, the west, one of the legs represents the western wing of the empire, and the other one uh, represents the eastern. And so the Western uh, Roman Empire lasted from 500 B.C. to 500 A.D., and the Eastern leg uh, lasted up to the 1500s. 
Daniel gave an, an extended explanation about the fourth one, speaking of Rome, part one, the legs, but also mentioning Rome, part two, or the revised Roman Empire, the toes. And the chief feature of these feet is that there were two materials that composed the toe that did not adhere well to one another. The Roman Empire was iron mixed with clay, and it speaks of an attempted union between imperialism and democracy. Uh, in verse 44 and 45, it mentions a rock. This signifies the fifth kingdom. This is when Jesus will come back, and he will set up his kingdom. It's called the millennial kingdom. It will last for a thousand years, and then it will go into the eternal state. Next, we see the consequences of uh, Daniel's interpretation. In verses 48 and 49, Daniel gets promoted. And in verse 49, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three young men, do as well. What's interesting about these three young men and Daniel being in the place of leadership, there's still two more deportations where Nebuchadnezzar's going to take the Jews from um, Judah, Jerusalem, and bring them over into his kingdom. And God has set up four young men that are going to rule and reign, that are going to rule over the Jews. So in the midst of all this judgment, we see God's hand of grace being able to bless his own people. Now we're going to get into chapter 7. The reason why I did chapter 2 and 7 is I gave you a handout that corresponds to the PowerPoint that we don't have, but you can see the correlation between chapter 2 and 7, and I didn't want anybody to get confused uh, thinking it was talking about something else. And in chapter 2, we're looking at the outward characteristic, the kingdom of the statue of man, where in chapter 7, we're looking at the heart or the inward character of man, uh, the animal instinct of man. Man who is not born again is like an animal. He's governed controlled by his own nature, by his own appetites, and he's like an animal. So I wanted to compare those two together. In chapter 2, we see Nebuchadnezzar was into self as a man, but chapter 7 is about Daniel and his dream, and he's uh, a man, but he's into God. He's a believer. And so the first thing we got to look at is these four beasts and get another description of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar gave in chapter 2. spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. I watched until its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth, and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth, between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth, and it was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue of its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one coming up from among the four three of the first horns were plucked up by the root. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. The way chapter 7 fits chronologically in the book of Daniel, if you read it chronologically, if you go chapters 1 through 4, 
and it actually goes chapter 7 and 8, and then it goes chapter 5. So that's the timeline if you're looking at it chronologically. Daniel would have been about 68 years old at this time. Verse 3, the beast rising from the storm. Now as we find from looking at verse 17, we see that these beasts represent kings of kingdoms. So we're, we're going to be talking about ten kings, and kings have to have kingdoms, so, so it's ten kings and ten kingdoms. And they correspond to the image that Nebuchadnezzar had the dream in chapter 2. In verse 4, Babylon used the image of a lion as we use the image of an eagle in America to describe our nation. The eagle is the king of birds, and the lion is the king of the beasts. And Babylon was the king of kingdoms. It was the first world empire, the first empire that controlled the world. So the first animal we see in Babylon, it corresponds in chapter 2 to the head of gold on Nebuchadnezzar's great image. In verse 5, we see a bear. Daniel says that this bear is raised up on one side. It talks about it's a, a union of two nations, the, the Medes and the Persians. The Persians eventually became the stronger of the two, so it's raised up on one side. And it corresponds to chapter 2 to the chest and arms of silver. In verse 6, it speaks of Alexander the Great. He was from Greece. He invaded the ancient world. In just four years, he took over the whole world. And, it, and, if, and if you read any uh, history on him, it says after four years, he broke down and started crying because there was no more world to conquer. So God allowed him to do what he did and do it swiftly. So he's compared to a leopard here in the kingdom of Greece. And it corresponds to chapter 2 of the stomach and thigh of bronze. And it mentions it has four wings like a bird. When he died at a young age, he had four generals and the kingdom was split in four. And so that's what that represents. But now we get into the fourth piece. This rep represents the Roman Empire. It has mentions teeth of iron. Rome was famous for the domination of people they conquered. They were not interested in observing cultures. They simply defeated the people, they executed them, and they took over their territory. Daniel saw some other things about this animal he referred to. There was ten horns, and they correspond to the ten toes of the statue, which were iron and clay. So in Neb's dream, they represent rulers in a future kingdom of Rome. Rome, too, was a revised Roman Empire. But as history unfolds, it becomes clear there's a gap in time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming. And before the Lord comes back, the world is going to be kind of set up in the same situation. Europe is going to be united, they're going to be ruling, and it's going to be like when it came back the first time. So in some way, there's going to be a revival of this Roman Empire in the future, and ten leaders are going to emerge. Uh, the question, who are these ten leaders, and who are the ten rulers? Well, uh, we don't really know for sure, but we do know it's coming. Um, and um, it'll happen exactly the way God said. The, the great thing about prophecy, Pastor Chuck, always says, after it happens and you look back and you understand what it means. So, but, but we are encouraged because we do see a lot of things happening in our day and age. Verse 8, we see these ten rulers are in power and they're going to, there's going to emerge another individual and he's described as having eyes like the eyes of a man. Evidently he's a very intelligent person and he has a mouth uttering great boasts. The Bible talks of this man as a name uh, called Antichrist. And he's going to claim that he's going to be God. He's going to blaspheme the world, and he's going to set himself up as God in the world. And this is what's being described here, this little horn. Um, and he replaces the ten horns. So if there's going to be ten kings, ten kingdoms, three are going to be removed. So ten minus three is seven, and then this little horn's going to rise up. Seven plus one is eight. So when, when the European uh, you know, revised Roman Empire is in operation and, and everything is starting to happen according to the book of Revelation, there will be actually eight kingdoms, eight kings. 
uh, including Antichrist as one of them. In verses 9 through 12, we see the Ancient of Days. And here we see a description of God the Father. And Daniel saw God take his seat on his heavenly throne. And we see God here seated as a judge in a court, a heavenly court. And he has books that are open. And they contain the records of deeds of the people and the kingdoms. In verse 11, we see God passes judgment on the fourth beast. And he destroys it along with all its horns. This is all future, and it corresponds to chapter 2, when the stone cut out without hands that comes crashing down on the statue and hits it on its feet and crushes the entire thing. So when Rome is destroyed by this rock and all the preceding kingdoms of the earth, they will be destroyed. If you want more information on this, you can go to Revelation chapter 16 and 18. It'll give you all kinds of insight, uh, speaking about this mystery Babylon, which refers to the kingdoms of the world, the end times. Verses 13 and 14 speak about the Son of Man coming in the clouds. This is the most frequent quoted verse uh, from the book of Daniel, the New Testament. It was Jesus' favorite title, being called the Son of Man during his earthly ministry. Now we see the interpretation, uh, a little more insight into these four beasts in verses 15 and 22. Verse 22 speaks of the Antichrist. If you want to understand more of what his role is and what's going to happen here, you can go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and get um, more information. On that. He's the one who's going to be waging war with uh, the followers of Jesus that are living on the earth during this time. Um, he's going to do this for the last three and a half years during this tribulation period. Tribulation period is a period of judgment that's going to come. First, the church is going to get raptured, then there's going to be this dispensation of time for a seven year period. But what's interesting is the last, the, the seven year period is broken into two parts, and the, the last three and a half years is when all hell is literally going to be broken loose. But we won't be around here to see this, so we don't have to worry about that. Verse 24 and 25, it talks about the, this other horn and how it intends to change times and, and the laws. We know that we are living in that in-between time. We know that after the rapture occurs, we know that Antichrist, he, he will make himself known for who he is. And he will make a covenant with the nation of Israel, and he will allow them to return to their homeland. We know multitudes will come. Israel during this time, and, and the whole purpose of the tribulation period, at least from the Antichrist agenda, is the first three and a half years, he's going to try to get all the Jews to come back to their homeland. The rest of the world's going to have some issues, but there's going to be peace in the Middle East, and probably a peace like they've never known before. But the second half of the three, three and a half years, the purpose of him to get them in the homeland is so he can kill them. And so um, that's what's going to take place here. Verse 25, he's going to command everyone on the earth to worship him as God. He's going to make major changes in how things are done and what is right and wrong. And it's interesting, we live in a day and age where all kinds of laws and rules are being changed and we're told what right and wrong is. And so uh, this is just a preview of coming attractions, uh, but things are going to be really, really bad. But by just us seeing so many changes happening in our life, it should encourage us that we may be going home soon. You know? So, and if not, we need to be faithful and be sharing our faith. We don't need to be, uh, you know, nobody knows the day or the hour, but it does say that the remnant will know the signs of the times. We know the world cannot read the signs of the times, but we know us as a believer, we get excited every time, you know, we turn on our TV and we start hearing things about the Middle East and Israel and seeing things around us. So we should never be afraid. We should be encouraged knowing that we might be going home there soon. We know that our Lord ministered on the earth during... Last three and a half years is when he did his ministry, and we know that the second half of the tribulation, the Antichrist, this is when he's going to uh, be the counterfeit, leading all the world astray. 
Next, we're going to get into chapter 3. In chapter 2, we saw the image of a man. In chapter 3, we see Nebuchadnezzar's image of gold. It was the internal image of his kingdom. You think he'd been happy being the chosen one, being what uh, Daniel in chapter 2, verse 47, and Yahweh. Evidently, these thoughts of his position as a head of gold in the back, and what follows is an account of a ceremony designed to unify the empire under Nebuchadnezzar's leadership and to claim an eternal reign on Babylon. So, in the first seven verses, we see this worship of this statue that the king makes. In verse 1, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald cried out loud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and nations, that the time be here and mention all these different instruments, in sympathy, you shall fall down and worship the golden image which King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the earth into the midst of a burning fire furnace. Now these three young men, they refuse to bow down. They know that one of the reasons they're in Babylon is because of worshiping false gods and idols. And they were not going to make a, this mistake again. We know according to the law that they were not allowed to have any other gods before them, nor were they allowed to bow down or serve them. In verse 2, we see that the statue is high. It's 90 feet high, nine stories. It was in a flat plain of Dura, so this, this statue could be seen for miles and miles. What's interesting is the dimensions of this image. In the book of Revelation, we read that the Antichrist will make an image of himself, and he will have the number 666 connected to it in some way. So Nebuchadnezzar here, he summons his officials to the image for what he probably intended to be a demonstration of his loyalty. Back in the day, it was not uh, all that uncommon for them to, uh, once a year or very frequently, to have some type of gathering and everybody give their allegiance to the king. So this may be uh, part of this as well. We know that music has always been interesting to people, and playing music has always been an important part of worship uh, to God and also to false gods. Music is a very powerful tool in the hand of man. It can be used to control the way man thinks, the philosophy, and the words behind music. The Babylonians were known to be obsessed. They were music crazed. And in Psalm 137.3 speaks of the exiles in Babylon. The captives were called out by the Babylonians to compose a song and to sing about their life. And they wanted the experience of the exiles to be sent to music. They were actually telling the Jews, tell me what you're feeling right now. Tell me what you're experiencing. Could you put in a song? Could we all sing together? I mean, that's, they literally did that. That's how music crazy they were and also how dark they were as well. In verse 7, we see a preview of what will happen in the tribulation period when the Antichrist will command everyone to worship himself and his image. So it's not just history here, but it's also prophetic. So then we see the charge uh, against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in verses 8 through 12. Um, in verses 9 through 11, though, putting people uh, to death in a furnace is something we know that the Nazis did in World War II. And here we see um, this happening here in Babylon. Uh, there's a verse in Isaiah that says, God says, though, though you go through the waters, meaning Egypt, and through the fire, he would preserve them. Not only did he preserve them there um, in Babylon, but he also preserved, some died, but he preserved the remnant, the Jews. And it's also a picture of the tribulation that God will preserve. One-third of the Jews will be spared from, from uh, uh, 
judgment, God will take them unto those things and take them to a safe place. In verses 13 to 18, we see the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, last week we talked about uh, conquering compromising and an integrity that cannot be removed. Here are these three young men. They didn't care if they were going to live or die. They were going to be obedient. They were going to serve God, and they were not going to compromise. And in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answer the king, and they say to him, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. He gave them a second chance to bow down uh, when the music started playing. Verse 17 says, If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. God sometimes delivers us while we're here living life here on this planet, and sometimes he delivers us and takes us home, and we should never question how God works. And verse 18 says, But if not, let it be known to you, O king, we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. So these three young men, they were not going to uh, buckle under pressure. We know man's gods, village gods, man's idols we run into. These men, they sought for no miracle, they expected none. Their faith was like Job. Though he slay me, I will trust him. You know, there's a, a worldly saying that every person has a price. Everybody can be bought and paid for. What's your price? How much is it going to cost? A million, two million, you want a house? You want the pretty girl ride off on the horse in the sunset? What's your price? These three men, they would not budge. God was their Lord and Savior. God was their deliverer. And they, these men could not be bought and paid for. They would not budge. In verses 19 to 27, we see uh, the king uh, execute the command, and these three young men are thrown in the fire. But what's interesting in verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar looks in the fire, and he, and he sees four men instead of three. And he says, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the fourth, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. So here we believe this is a pre-carded picture of Jesus Christ before he clothed himself in humanity, a picture that God uh, does not always take us out of the fire, out of the trial, but he goes through promised he would never leave us or be forsaken. Then we see the consequences of these young men. Nebuchadnezzar makes Judaism the recognized religion with rights to toleration and respect. What we saw in the beginning of this chapter is Nebuchadnezzar intended to unite his kingdom under one religion, him, himself. But at the end, he acknowledges Yahweh's sovereignty and he permits uh, worshiping him. Then these three young men are raised to a higher level of authority for more in the kingdom. I think the problem that we have sometimes is we come to those places in life where we decide um, uh, this is what I want versus what God says. God says we're to seek the things above. And sometimes our flesh gets in the way and we try to seek the things that we want, what we believe is best for us. But God sometimes does not give us what we want because he knows what's best for us. We see here that believers can remain faithful as these three young men did. We know that Christ is with us in the trials and he goes through them with us. Sometimes God allows his people to suffer and die. Sometimes he allows his people to suffer and die so we can take them out. But either way, it's all for God's glory. And God gives us the promise in Romans 8.38 that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, chapter 4. Chapter 4, we see a tree of success. There are two tragedies in life. One is to lose your heart's desire, and the other is to gain. God interrupts our lives in two dramatic ways, in adversary and in prosperity. And in each case, God is speaking. 
However, we listen more attentively in adversary than in prosperity. Prosperity and faith seldom work together. There is something about success that tends to promote prideful self-sufficiency rather than making us humble and grateful to God. Chapter 4 of Daniel is a record of Nebuchadnezzar's pride and his humility, and it's a form of a letter. The main reason for this chapter is God is sovereign over the kings as well as kingdoms. And so we see in the first three verses here, we see the introduction to uh, this uh, chapter. And the writer of the book, we know, is Daniel, but most commentators believe that this particular chapter is written in the hand of a Gentile king. And he's telling his story. He's telling his God's story. And he's looking back, and this is actually a testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, so now the king has another dream, and he's frustrated. You think he would learn that the anchovies are huge over that one. <laughs> and it says in verse 4, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. Saw a dream which made me afraid, and thoughts on my bed and visions on my head troubled me. Verse 4 Like a tree, he was bountiful. He was just at the height of his power when this happened. The city of Babylon was one of the greatest cities of the ancient world, some call it the seventh wonder of the world. It had walls that had 15 square mile walls. They were 300 feet high, 87 feet thick. Uh, they had 100 brass gates. They had 100 towers. Uh, they had this plants hanging down that were known for the, for, for the hanging gardens of Ga uh, Babylon. It, it was just an incredible, impenetrable fortress, so he thought. And he's, this chapter, he's sitting around and he's taking in, the, the kingdom's finished, he's walking on the top of his palace, and he's taking credit for everything that's taking place here, forgetting that God has interrupted him twice, once in the fiery furnace we just saw, and revealed himself to him, and another time in this image first read in chapter 2. Now God's going to invade his world again. And it's a beautiful picture of God meeting us. We never found God. God found us. And God continually kept bringing his presence before us, bringing people in our lives until one day we realized oh my goodness, there is a God and he does love us. And it all clicked and, and then we accepted the Lord. So I believe this is a, a, an incredible story of a, of a heathen king who was about as disgusting and barbaric and you know, we can't even talk about the stuff he did. And God one day knocked on the door of his heart and said, Nebuchadnezzar, I love you and I want you to serve me. And so here we go. So Ned has this dream and he calls uh, Daniel to come in and to interpret his dream to him. And so um, the king first describes, this time he tells Daniel the dream, he describes this tree, uh, verse 12, that grew and became strong and it reached the heavens. And verse 13 says, And I saw in the vision there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And he cried out loud and said thus, Chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip its leaves, scatter its fruit. So Daniel gives an interpretation. And it really bothers me because I think Daniel really learned um, in time to love Nebuchadnezzar. And I think Neb and Daniel had some kind of a relationship going. God was going to preserve Nebuchadnezzar while he removed him from his kingdom. He's going to go through seven seasons. We don't know if it was seven seasons like spring, fall, or seven years. He's going to go and sing, but God is going to preserve his kingdom until one day in the next year. Verse 27, we see um, that judgment is always conditioned upon people not repenting. We know God gave Nebuchadnezzar a long rope many months went by after Daniel explained uh, 
misinterpretations of the dream. We know pride is one of the worst sins that the Bible mentions. Um, it's one of those spoken of as one of the deadly sins. Um, it's the one uh, that originated all the other sins. Uh, we know that was the, the reason why uh, Lucifer fell because of pride one day he went to with God. And so here we see judgment being fulfilled here in verses 23. And so here, many months goes by, and now he's walking on top of his palace. And the king spoke, and he said, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? And then verse 31 it says, While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven came and said, Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. Your kingdom has departed from you, and you shall... And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you be glass like an oxen. Seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives to whoever he chooses. So here we see in verse 31 that his sovereignty has been removed. You could say that today's vernacular, uh, he had the carpet pulled out from under him. Everything that he was and had was removed. And so God granted his choice. No time to Nebuchadnezzar seek God, but we see God seeking him. And at the end of these seven seasons, in verses 34 through 37, we see Nebuchadnezzar being restored. Verse 34 says, At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. At the end of that 70 years or seasons, Nebuchadnezzar's reason came back to him. Why? Because he came to the end of himself. Just like when we come to the Lord that first time, we had to come to the end of ourselves. We had to bow the knee. We had to look to the cross. We had to say, Lord, take my life. Do whatever you want with it. It's yours. And that's when the Lord come inside of us. Sometimes God has to put a man down on his knees for an extended period of time to get his attention. God is able to humble those who walk in pride. First Peter and James, they exhort us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. What does that mean? How do we go about humbling ourselves? It means acknowledging that we're not sovereign and godless. That's the end of the Lord of our life. Chapter 5. Now we're going to see a great feast. And his wives and his concubines drank from them. 
And they drank wine and they praised the God of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone and stone. So this was some party. And just to let you know what was going on, the Medes and the Persians were slowly taking over the whole Babylonian Empire. And they basically conquered the whole territory. All that was left was this impenetrable city that had these walls that were 300 feet high and 87 feet thick. And, they, and so this king um, is actually the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He throws this party for a thousand of his lords, these important people in the kingdom. And they're just going to party the night away, thinking, oh, they can't touch us. Uh, you know, uh, we can live here for, 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 for you know, years and years. They have the, the, the river of uh, Euphrates River flowing through the city. Uh, there's over a million people in the city. There's all this area to be farmed. Um, they thought that they were going to go on forever, and they were just going to laugh the night away. But God was going to intervene, and God was going to move Evidently, the vessels from Jerusalem temple had been stored with trophies of war, not previously used. Or something you did back in the day when you conquered somebody, you steal their toys and their precious things, and theirs becomes yours. Um, but for some reason, Nebuchadnezzar, he never, there's no mention of him using them. Uh, he respected them in, in a sense that he left them alone. This particular king, he's going to take them out, and he's going to mock the Hebrew God. He's going to mock Yahweh, and he's going to make toast to their God. And so this was a very religious thing, and this very night his kingdom was going to be removed from him. Now in verse 5, a revelation appears. And in the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared, and were opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the walls of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. This was a supernatural message that they could not read or understand. The world cannot understand the things of the spirit because they're spirit. And the world doesn't understand the signs of the times today. They think the world's going to go on forever, or you know, they got all these different philosophies and things, and they get all the theology from all the new movies that come out. But we know that God is doing something, and God is preparing us, and we're encouraged. But the world cannot understand. So there's this writing on the wall, and he has no clue what that means, but he's afraid. He calls the queen, the king comes out in verses 10 and 12, and gives counsel, says there's this man, Daniel, the man of God, you've got to use him. Verses 13 to 16, Daniel comes out. He speaks. Paul mentions something about this that's going on. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, The wisdom of the world cannot understand the things of God. This is a perfect example of people who did not know God or know what God was doing. And this is typical of that day and typical of our day. Verses 17 to 24, Daniel rebukes the king. Belshazzar says, You have not humbled your heart like Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather. You should have known better. Verse 23 says, You have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubine have drunk wine from you. And you have praised the God of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see, hear, or know. And I love this part. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. You know, it's one thing for the world to act the way they do and not know. This king knew from Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, how God invaded his world three times and how eventually, I believe, he became a believer. And now the things that he's doing, he's held accountable for. You know, just like we would not, uh, when we have children and we raise our children, we would not scold or discipline 
our children, let's say if they were two or three and they're very young, the same way we would talk to our teenagers when they wrecked the car, you know? Uh, it was a whole different thing, you know, and, and we handled it. But he knew better, and so God was going to judge him, and judge him this very young. Verse 22, uh, this verse is key to uh, the chapter, that Belshazzar did something worse than Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he knew he knew everything about his grandfather. He knew how God used him, and he did not come to his heart. Therefore, the God he held Belshazzar's life in his hand had sent a hand to write an inscription on the wall. It was a judgment. Verses 25 to 28, we get this judgment here and the interpretation of it. It says in verse 25, And this is the inscription that was written. Meaning, meaning, Tekel and Carson. This is the interpretation of each word. Meaning, God has numbered the kingdom. He finished it. Tekel, you have been found weighed. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanted. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So here's Belshazzar. He's found wanted in the balances. Just as every man apart from Jesus Christ is found wanted, no man apart from Jesus has any hope of eternal life um, with God. Verses 29 31, we see Daniel is raised and Belshazzar falls. According to history, um, the, the, the Medes and the Persians, they got together, they dammed up the Euphrates River, they diverted it, uh, the water level dropped, they went underneath the city gate, supposedly the gate wasn't even locked, and they took over the city without the very night. Well, that night, the, the king was partying the night away. Talk about the last call. This is Belshazzar's last event when he's honoring Daniel. What's interesting, of course, is we see a Gentile ruler honoring a Jew as his last event judgment. I think God did this for his namesake. And then, of course, uh, we see uh, God honoring uh, Genesis uh, chapter 12, the covenant with Abraham. Man may have the first word, but God will have the last. And that very night, Belshazzar was slain, and Darius the man received the kingdom. Belshazzar's disrespect for the Most High God is typical of human nature. Most people are unbelievers and they have to live like this in those kind of things. What's the application for us? Well, we're to bow. Bow the knee, we're to trust him. We're to acknowledge God in all ways. We're to seek his wisdom. We're to trust in his ways. Chapter 6. Now we're going to see a pride of a particular king. We're going to see a supernatural event how God's going to preserve thing we see in the first three verses of chapter 6 is once again we see Daniel getting promoted. Now he gets promoted in the new kingdom. Chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to settle the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give an account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and the satraps because an excellent spirit was in and the king gave thought to set him over all ground. So here we see 120 satraps, or like governors of these 120 provinces of this whole empire, the Neo-Persian Empire. And there was three governors that ruled over those 120, and Daniel was going to be over those two. And he was going to be basically the prime and second in command. This was probably when Darius was in power for about 20 years. But there was a conspiracy against him. Um, they were jealous, you know, and they probably, Daniel, probably because of the love of God, he probably had that, that shine that us Christians have when the Spirit of God is in us and we're walking in the Spirit. 
and they probably resented Daniel and just what they wanted was blessing him and using him. So the governors and the satraps sought to find some charge, verse 4, against Daniel concerning the king, but they could find no charge for fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error of fault found in him. What do you wish that could be said about us? Yeah. When we are walking in the spirit and the world tries to trap us or, you know, dig pits for us to fall in, the Bible says we'll fall in their own pit. Then these men, verse 5, said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of God, you know, maybe against uh, the gospel. But here's interesting, and here we see a little deception. In verse 7 it says, All the governors of the kingdom, well, guess what? It isn't all. All doesn't always mean all because Daniel wanted to be all, and he's not part of this. And it says, All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators, the satraps, the counselors, and the advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, this is a heathen king, and these men are kind of playing him up, and it probably sounded really good for his ego. Nobody's going to worship any god or man except for me. I like that. That's good. But the problem was, is Darius loved him. And for a moment, he got excited. He got emotional. He was led emotionally. And he forgot that he knew about Daniel. He knew about Daniel's God. Daniel was not a, a private detective. He was not a PI Christian. I'm sure Daniel, well, he wasn't a Christian, but he was a Jew. But I'm sure Daniel shared his faith with everybody. I mean, when you're excited about the things of God, how do you not tell people about what, what we do as Christians, we know that. And so we know that Daniel was like that too. Verse 8 says, Now, O king, establish the decrees and sign the writings so that they cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the decree. In verse 4, we see this was office politics with the vengeance. They did not want Daniel to get this promotion. Somebody wanted his place, and they were not going to allow that to happen. Daniel was a man of integrity. The most important characteristic that we could have is just being what God's called us to be. And God's called all of us, the body of Christ. Um, one thing, he's called us all to be faithful. Just be faithful in what's been given to you. Faithful in the little things. And God said, he'll give you more. And so Daniel always was giving more to him. Verse 5, these officials knew that Daniel was a God-fearing man who did not worship pagan idols. So they set a trap for him, believing that he would remain faithful to his faith. Here's a man, we can't do nothing. He will remain faithful to his faith. That's the kind of heart we should have. Verses 6 and 7. This may have been done to unify the empire, to bring everyone together, and to acknowledge the king as authority over him, kind of like what Nebuchadnezzar did in chapter 4. Um, if they did not obey the king, it meant the lion's den. Now we know in the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar did something different. When you disobeyed the king, they threw you in the fiery furnace. But the Persians didn't do that. One of the gods that they worshipped was a god of fire. So they didn't throw people in the fire. They threw them into the lion's den. And um, that's what they did. So we see in verses 10 and 15, we see Daniel's faithfulness. We see this predicament that Darius is in. In Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom in Babylon, if a king, if, if, if Nebuchadnezzar made a law, he could change the law and any whim. But according to the Medes and Persians, once a law was established, it was set in stone. So the king's trap, he agreed to this, and now Daniel's going to go to the lion's den. Um, we know Daniel gave priority to prayer. 
I bet you when Danny went back to his place and he prayed, I bet you he prayed all the time. I bet you he prayed for their salvation. I bet you he prayed for their souls. Uh, but we do believe that Darius knew Daniel loved him and respected him. What's interesting is when Daniel sung into the lion's den in verse 16, at the very end it says, and this is the king speaking to Daniel. And so you had to wonder just how much, you know, sometimes we plant those seeds in people's lives and we water those seeds and we never know the fruit. Sometimes we never see if they become saved or not. But here's kind of an interesting thought. The king speaking to Daniel, maybe his last words before he ever sees him, he says, Daniel, your God whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. So I just thought that was awesome. Like the three young men, God did not take him out of the problem. What God did is enable him to go through this problem successfully. We know that's how God works. Even sometimes it's a even martyrdom. Verses 19 and 24, we see Daniel's deliverance and we see the destruction of the very enemies. You know, the Romans had a saying. They, they had a saying called Roman mercy. Um, Forty lashes if, if um, you know, there, was, uh, there was whipping and then there was scourging. The scourging is when they attached metal glass and, and, he, and he usually bled to death or died from infection. And so uh, 40 lashes normally killed a man, so the Romans had the same Roman, you know, mercy. Uh, 40 minus one lashes, you know. Well, the Persians kind of had a saying here, too. Uh, when you're thrown in the lion's den, only a one-night stay is all that was required. And so, uh, and so we see God's hand deliver uh, Daniel. Um, and, you know, what's interesting is how we respond to difficulty shows whether God is able or not. And that's probably our greatest witness to the world. You know, we go through trials, we go through trivia, we go through everything everybody else goes through. The only difference is we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. And when we give people hope and tell them that no matter what happens, you know, operation, if I come out of this situation, if I lose everything I have, it doesn't matter because God's on the throne, He knows what's best, and this world's not my own. So Daniel was delivered from the lion's den, and um, we know it's the angel of the Lord that shut the mouth. Then Darius makes a decree, and he praises Yahweh. In verse 26 it says, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble in fear before the God of is the living God, steadfast forever. His kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. So the story ends with the king praising and promoting Yahweh and ordering his subjects to do the same. And I thought, what can I give to close after going through all these chapters? A lot of information, and I try to do a little application along the way. The thing we have to remember is God is in control of Yahweh's. And things may look like they're out of control, but they're not out of control. Everything's going according to God's plan and purpose in our lives, inside, around us, our immediate family. Everything's going according to plan. The thing is, is we just need to trust God. We need to enjoy the season we're in because life is full of seasons. Just like it's spring, before we know it's going to be summer. Before we know it, we're going to be in the presence of the Lord. So we need to just trust Him, seek Him, and you know, we really need to get to know God's word. The greatest thing about prophecy is knowing that God. It should encourage us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you so much. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you promised that you would never leave us or forsake us. We thank you for the hope that you've given us. The hope of the Holy Spirit, the hope of your word, the hope of prophecy, Lord, encouraging us about not to be scared about the things that are set before us because you said these things were happening. You said that you would, uh, when these things begin to happen, you said for us to look up because our redemption is so, Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here this evening that 
does not know you, and maybe heard these things for the first time, Lord, that they would bow the knee, that they would cry out, ask you to forgive their sins, ask you to be their Lord and Savior, and that they would trust you and give their life to you. We know, God, that you are a God of salvation. We wish that none perish, but all have eternal life. So, Lord, if anybody has those issues, Lord, I pray that you would meet them right now, that they would cry out, that they would just speak from their heart and ask you to be the Lord of their life. Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the things that you're doing in our lives. 